Today we present the first of eight documentaries produced as a part of our special series, It's About Race, Chicago Matters. Most of us learn what we know about this country's meatpacking industry by reading Upton Sinclair's turn-of-the-century novel, The Jungle. It's the story of a Lithuanian immigrant, Jurgis Rutkis, who comes to work in one of Chicago's packing houses. What he finds is a world of exploitation, corruption, and filth. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausages. There would come all the way back from Europe old sausage that had been rejected, and that was moldy and white. It would be dosed with borax and glycerin and dumped into the hoppers and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out on the floor in the dirt and sawdust where the workers had tramped and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. The meat would be shoveled into carts, and the men who did the shoveling would not trouble to lift out a rat even when they saw one. The jungle was a scathing indictment of the meatpacking industry, meant to stir the nation's conscience about the plight of the packing house workers. The book worked, but not in the way Upton Sinclair had intended. I aimed for the heart, he would later say, but hit the stomach. The jungle led to the passage of a federal meat inspection law, but did little to improve conditions in the packing industry. That would come much later. So when tens of thousands of African Americans arrived in Chicago from the South during World War I to work in packing houses, the beginning of what's known as the Great Northern Migration, they encountered conditions similar to those described in the jungle. Like the fictional character Jurgis Rutkus, they came to Chicago seeking a better life. Some would eventually find it, but not without a long, hard fight. Dan Collison produced our documentary on the history of African Americans in Chicago's packing houses. It's called Hog Butchers for the World. All out for the animals. Train going north. Watch your steps, please. Have your tickets. All aboard. This train is bound shy. This train. All aboard. This train is bound shy. This train. All aboard. This train is bound shy. Get on board if you want to ride this train. Twelfth Street and Michigan Avenue along the lakefront was the arrival point for the migrants, Chicago's Ellis Island. It must have been a sight to see Chicago in 1916. This industrial mecca of steel and livestock this city of the big shoulders, as poet Carl Sandburg described it, it must have been a sight indeed for a farmhand from the Mississippi Delta. The smell was another matter altogether. This is how Upton Sinclair described it in his turn-of-the-century novel, The Jungle. It was an elemental odor, raw and crude. It was rich, almost rancid, sensual, and strong. There were some who drank it in as if it were an intoxicant. There were others who put their handkerchiefs to their faces. The new emigrants were still tasting it, lost in wonder, when suddenly the car came to a halt and the door was flung open and a voice shouted, Stockyards! A sea of pens, Sinclair wrote, so many cattle no one had ever dreamed existed in the world. I got goats, I got sheep, I got hogs, I got cows, I got horses, I got all livestock, I got all livestock. Oh, the rock on the line, the 
America had entered the war in Europe, and the packing houses were struggling to keep up with demand for meat products to feed the troops. Immigration from Eastern Europe had dropped off to almost nothing, so the African-American migrants had little trouble finding work in the packing houses. Like the Poles, Lithuanians, and Bohemians before them, blacks were hired to do the most grueling and tedious jobs, lugging huge sides of beef, stuffing sausages, or working on the killing floor. It was all highly specialized labor, each man having his task to do. Generally, this would consist of only two or three specific cuts and would pass down the line of 15 or 20 carcasses, making these cuts upon each. First there came the butcher to bleed them. This meant one swift stroke, so swift that you could not see it, only the flash of the knife. Before you could realize it, the man had darted on to the next line, and a stream of bright red was pouring out upon the floor. The floor was half an inch deep with blood, in spite of the best efforts of men who kept shoveling it through holes. It must have made the floor slippery, but no one could have guessed this by watching the man at work. The black migrants had entered a new and alien world. While many were used to long, hard days working on southern farms, Few had experienced the rigid assembly line jobs, like those in Chicago's packing houses, working by the time clock instead of the sun. Just getting to work was a challenge. Between the stockyards and the so-called black belt were Irish-American neighborhoods ruled by gangs of young toughs. The migrants had also arrived as industry and labor were squaring off for what would be a decades-long fight, a fight in which black workers at various times would be caught smack in the middle. In 1917, the Stockyards Labor Council launched a major organizing drive in the packing houses. The packers had smashed an earlier attempt to unionize, and even though workers from various racial and ethnic groups crossed the picket lines in a 1904 strike, the white unions blamed black strikebreakers for that defeat. Organized labor was clearly no champion of the black worker. Some unions banned African Americans altogether. So, to men like Austin Heavy Williams, a recent arrival from Texas, a union meant a white man's union. When a federal arbitrator held a hearing in 1919 on conditions in the stockyards, Heavy Williams testified that union organizers were overly aggressive. When they put on one of those union buttons, they want to run over you, and I would have been dud in. Made up my mind to go in two or three times, but every time I got ready to join, they're sticking something on the board to bully you. It's like, if you don't get in, we're going to put you out. Heavy Williams became a militant anti-union leader at the Wilson plant, openly discouraging other black workers from signing up. That led to charges that he was a paid agent of the company. Frank Custer, a recent immigrant from Mississippi and a union steward on the killing floor at the Wilson plant, testified that Heavy Williams was a provocateur, part of an effort to pit worker against worker, white against black, even blacks against each other. It seems as though the Wilson Company is taking the highest class of my race up from Texas, using that as a big stick, using them as something to cut their own throats, to run themselves lower than they are today. Blacks were increasingly being pulled by both sides, the Union and the Packers. It seems we're standing between two fires, Frank Custer said. But even though he was a shop steward, Custer, like most blacks, clearly identified with his race first and the union second. Supposing race trouble starts, 
I'm a colored man. I love my family tree. And I ain't going to stand for no white man to come imposing on my color. If he imposes on my race, there's going to be a fight. I don't care if the colored man wears a union button or not. Race trouble did start. In the summer of 1919, pent-up racial tensions in Chicago exploded into a week of bloody riots. A sharp recession right after World War I had increased unemployment and white resentment against blacks who had jobs. That resentment was unleashed in attacks against blacks going to and from work. In some cases, blacks fought back, and when it was over, 38 people were dead, more than 500 were injured. What little racial unity had been built up in the packing houses was destroyed, dealing a death blow to the union's organizing drive. When another big strike hit the packing houses in 1921, blacks would cross the picket lines in large numbers. The packers had prevailed in this first major battle to win the loyalty of the black worker. For the packers and for American industry in general, the mid and late 20s was a time of unprecedented prosperity. The southern migration continued unabated, doubling Chicago's black population and turning the city's black belt into a vibrant cultural center, a center for hot jazz. But as the Great Depression took hold, the Packers' promises of job security and benefits, the so-called welfare capitalism of the 20s, began to erode. In the early 30s, layoffs and wage cuts became the order of the day. I passed the South Guard this morning. Showcase, I give a pee. Say, got a horse and raise man. On all of my meat. You know I need At this point, there was hardly a union member to be found in Chicago's packing houses. Organized labor simply was not a factor. But that would soon change. In the mid-30s, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, was formed to organize workers in all the big industries, steel, auto, coal. It also targeted the packing houses. One of the CIO's biggest challenges would be organizing the older black workers who had experienced the earlier union campaigns, men like Phil Waitman, Waitman was part of the first wave of Southerners to migrate north. In 1917, he left his home in Vicksburg, Mississippi, following his father, an ex-slave, to East St. Louis. At the age of 16, Waitman got a job in the armor plant and joined the Amalgamated Meatcutters Union. But an incident during a Labor Day celebration at the Union Hall in 1918 soured his commitment to trade unionism. Waitman told the story in this 1986 interview. I was a member of the Amalgamated. Yeah. And by criminy. Well, lined up. I'm a youngster. Lined up to get a uh, sandwich or whatever they were serving. When I got up there, guy looked at me and said, We don't feed you in this line. I said, What? You don't serve me in this line? I wasn't accustomed to that, you know. Even if I was from Mississippi. Although I got away from that. So um, I walked out of that hall. Waitman quit the union and was one of many blacks who crossed the picket lines in the 1921 strike. 
By the mid-30s, he was in Chicago working on the hog kill at the Swift plant. When the CIO organizing campaign began, Waitman was busy organizing a company baseball team, the Swift Premiums. In other words, you could say, at that point, I was a company man in every, every sense of the word, you see. The Swift Company had worked hard to cultivate a reputation of treating its employees like family. That had impressed Waitman, who had not forgotten the discrimination by the Meatcutters Union. So when union organizers came around, he told them in no uncertain terms he was not interested. But Waitman kept seeing things happening, speed-ups, men hurt on the job. And when a fellow worker on the hog kill was summarily fired, Waitman protested to his foreman. So I said, that could apply to me. That could apply to anybody in here. Right? He said, that's right. For Waitman, that was it. He attended the next union meeting and joined up. The following morning, he showed up at work wearing a half dozen union buttons on his cap and a clear message for his boss. I said, from this day on, every member in this department, everybody in this department, 120 members, 120 workers, is going to be members of this union. I am going to see to that. Phil Waitman made good on his promise. He went on to become president of Swift Local 28. Then, in 1943, 25 years after the Meat Cutters Union refused to serve him that Labor Day in East St. Louis, Waitman was appointed international vice president of the newly formed United Packing House Workers of America. I believe, I believe, Uncle Sam can use me. World War II. Many blacks went off to fight in Europe and the Pacific, but many more found jobs in the packing houses, replacing whites who'd moved to more lucrative jobs in the war plants. Todd Tate found work in the canned meat department at Armour. Well, it was hot in there, about 120 degrees, I guess. And uh, even in the wintertime, it was hot and hard, heavy work. Had to wear rubber boots, knee boots, uh, because you had a lot of water on the floor. Tate quickly joined the union and became a shop steward. On top of the 59 cents an hour Armour paid him, the union gave Tate 50 cents for every new employee he signed up. By now, most blacks needed little convincing. They were part of a new, more militant generation of workers which had not experienced the white man's union of an earlier era. To them, it was clear who the enemy was, the boss. As editor of a union newsletter, The Cleaver, Tate had a forum to vent his anger at his boss. I wrote one guy up, a guy named Luther Lovelace. He was a plant manager. And I had the uh, girl that uh, transcribed the paper. She cut a cartoon out with a guy with a cowboy hat and a whip in his hand. And the captain said, Lovelace cracks the whip. And uh, if he liked you, if you worked hard, you got along with him. If he didn't, he laid you off at his discretion. He didn't have to go by a seniority or nothing. Some foremen developed a system known as pint seniority. A pint of booze for the foreman on payday might get a worker a promotion. For women, the price might be a sexual favor. By the end of the war, women made up a fourth of the workforce in the packing houses. Addie Wyatt started working at Armour on and off during the war. Then, at the nearby Illinois meat plant, in the canned stew department. I was on assembly line with other women, and um, I was amazed when they gave me a white uniform, like a nurse's uniform, 
and a nurse's cap to wear, and I could not correlate that with the job that I was supposed to do. And uh, we would stand on each side of the conveyor, and um, when the stew would come down the line in pans, we would take it out of the pans and put it in the cans. And of course, you had to be fast at doing that. And uh, the cans would sit on a scale, and you had to be accurate in the weight. Wyatt was only 18 years old, and to her, 62 cents an hour was impressive. When she found out that men doing the same work were paid 14 cents an hour more, she got mad. When she was replaced by a white woman after getting promoted to a job putting lids on cans, she was furious. The union had fought hard for contract provisions prohibiting discrimination in employment and in hiring and filed a grievance on Wyatt's behalf. We went down and we met with the foreman and with the supervisor and uh, we raised the grievance. And um, I kept on arguing my case and the steward pulled on my coat, you know, to tell me to quiet down. And after we got on the outside, she said to me, she said, I went ever you win your grievance, don't keep talking. And I said, did we win it? And she said, yes, you're going back putting lids on the cans. That was moving to me, two young black women sitting on one side of the table, two or three white men who were supervisors sitting on the other side and respecting, you know, each other. And at the same time, she said, I won. Until then, Wyatt was reluctant to get involved with the union. But the incident left such an impression, she soon began going to union meetings. In 1952, Addie Wyatt became the first female president of a packing house workers local. Two years later, she was appointed an international representative of the union. By this point, blacks made up a majority of the workforce in Chicago's packing houses, and many held powerful positions in the union, which was increasingly becoming active in civil rights issues. We are trying to conduct a nonviolent movement here in Chicago. And we're going on with that program, but we need support. When Dr. Martin Luther King brought his freedom movement to Chicago in 1966, he got little support from organized labor. The Packing House Workers Union was one of the exceptions. Union leader Charles Hayes helped coordinate King's Chicago campaign. You couldn't find a union hall that King could hardly meet in, except ours. When King and his supporters marched into Chicago's all-white neighborhoods demanding open housing, they were met by angry and violent mobs. We were marching through the southwestern part of the city of Chicago, and some of the most racist kind of epithets were thrown at you, and trees spitting on you, and this kind of stuff. Get up in the tree and spit down on you, throw water down on you. Yeah, and through all that. The union's progressive stance on civil rights also met with internal resistance in parts of the South. Southern locals were required to enforce bans on segregated dressing rooms and drinking fountains in the plants. Some refused, and eight Southern locals left the union. So the South was not friendly territory for blacks like Charles Hayes and Russell Lassley, head of the union's civil rights department. Hayes recalls a time when he and Lassley traveled to Louisiana to address a union local believed to have a large Ku Klux Klan membership. In his speech, Lassley deleted all references to civil rights. On the way home, Hayes confronted Lassley, wanting to know why he had censored himself. 
He got mad at me. He said, look, I don't know about you, but I didn't come down here not to go back. I didn't come down here to be alligator food. Do you know they could have thrown us both in that swamp? <laughs> I said to myself, I said, you know, he's right. <laughs> but some of the things that we've gone through, it's really uh, very, very mind-boggling to think about it sometimes. For Hayes and others at the forefront of the labor and civil rights movement, hostile situations were nothing new. Do you feel that the Russian communist system is superior to our system? When the Red Scare swept the country following World War II, organized labor was a prime target. Hayes and other union leaders were subpoenaed to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. So what they asked you asked us to be fundamental question. Uh, are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Rather than try to answer that, because there's a lot of tales to it, we just took, I took the Fifth Amendment, so did several others. Uh, it, it was a pretty rough period to ride through that. But uh, people, uh, I don't, I'll be very honest with you, I don't remember ever signing a card to become a member of the Communist Party. I don't remember if I did. I really didn't remember. Whether Hayes was a communist or not, the Packinghouse workers, like the other CIO unions, had a large communist membership, active at all levels. Starting in the late 40s, the government began pressuring the CIO to purge the communists. Leaders like Herb March, who helped found the Packinghouse Workers' Union, were forced to resign. This and a nearly disastrous strike in 1948 weakened the union. The more conservative amalgamated meat cutters' union moved in and tried to get packing house workers to switch over. Ultimately, the packing house workers' union survived the raids and the witch hunts. What it couldn't survive was the exodus of packing houses from Chicago. The introduction of refrigerated rail cars and trucks allowed companies to locate their packing houses closer to the source of the livestock, eliminating the costly process of shipping live cattle, hogs, and sheep to Chicago. It all began in 1955 with the announcement of the closing of the Wilson plant that used to be here at 42nd and Marshfield Avenue, where a McDonald's and a Swaparama flea market are now. Wilson is where Charles Hayes got his start. We had 3,500 members who worked for Wilson right here. When she went down, it hurt. Yeah, yeah. Armour and Swift soon followed. By the mid-60s, all but a few small packing houses had left Chicago. And so packing house jobs, the prime attraction for so many rural blacks from the South for a half century, had virtually disappeared. I caught the streetcar this morning. About a half past four. I give the man 11 cents, he said. I swear he to send more. You know I need to earn a dollar. Most of those that were lucky enough to get jobs uh, went uh, uh, service-like jobs, you know, uh, working at some hotel or something of that sort. But uh, a lot of them took their pension, took their early pension. It's particularly true among women. In 1968, its membership dwindling, the United Packing House Workers of America was forced to merge with its longtime rival, the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union. Union leader Addie Wyatt says, for some, the merger destroyed everything they had worked long and hard to build. Uh, we had one of our great leaders, Leon Beverly, 
who was the president of our largest local union, and uh, it really broke him. I think he finally took his life, uh, and it took the life of many people because they didn't see themselves uh, with the same leadership status and with the same leadership opportunities to help their people. Today, Charles Hayes surveys the wreckage of the old Union headquarters at 49th and Wabash on Chicago's south side. That used to be my office there, right there. In 1983, when Hayes was elected to Congress, the building was renamed the Charles Hayes Labor and Community Center. Now, it's an abandoned shell that's been picked clean by vandals. I don't know who's in here. They even took the phone, the public phone. Everything of any value has been stolen the steel doors, the copper wiring and the light fixtures, a large poster of a mass rally at the stockyards in the 1950s. See this picture that was here was glass enclosed. And that's what they did in order to get to the picture, I guess. Tore that out. As he sees more of this ruined building, sees more of the destruction of a place that had attracted leaders like King, Robeson and Du Bois. Hayes gets more and more upset, as if the building has become the physical manifestation of all that has been lost. To see this, where you can meet and gather and talk and discuss issues, uh, minimum wage, heck, we used to have these kind of rallies here. Where you <laughs> it hurts to be in, see it in this condition, you know. Last November, Charles Hayes lost his congressional seat to former Black Panther leader Bobby Rush and, at age 75, has retired from politics. Addie Wyatt remained active in the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union and its successor, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, until 1984, when she retired to devote all her energies to her church, which she co-pastors with her husband. Todd Tate is retired and living in Oak Park, Illinois, Phil Waitman, the son of a slave who overcame the discrimination of the union's early days to become international vice president of the Packinghouse Workers Union, went on to work with the civil rights movement and then for the federal government's Office of Economic Opportunity until his retirement in 1975. Phil Waitman died in 1988, two years after this interview. As you look back on the time and energy that you put into the labor movement, what do you think you gained? What do you think you got out of that, uh, experience. I got a great deal of experience in dealing with people, how to treat people, how to listen and understand and to recognize the sufferings of people. I have learned that. And I've learned to be compassionate because in hearing the cries, the problems of people, I recognize what my duty still is, as long as I live, to do what I can to be helpful. Hog Butchers for the World was produced by Dan Collison and edited by Gary Cavino. The studio engineer was Vince Muse. 
Studs Terkel read the excerpts from The Jungle. The oral history recordings were provided by the Wisconsin Historical Society. It's About Race, Chicago Matters is a collaboration between WBEZ Radio, WTTW Television, and the Chicago Community Trust, now in its 78th year of identifying and responding to community needs. Oh, <laughs>